meditations are the methods for gaining insight and uh, obviously the calmer the mind the easier it is to gain insight so a good um, a method is to first do calm meditation that is try to stay focused on the breath or if you can do the absorptions stay focused on that and follow that with a contemplation so first calm then inside it's um, easier that way however if the mind is not willing to become calm if it's playing around and uh, going all over the place do contemplation instead that's fine either way there are many methods but there are only two directions calm and insight and a little bit of calm brings a bit of insight and a bit of insight brings a bit of calm and if you add the bits together eventually hopefully there will be a lot of both and, um, so if the mind and there are different days sometimes the mind starts thinking about things and just won't let go one gets the feeling sometimes that if it was a dog gnawing a bone and doesn't want to let go of that bone even though the bone has absolutely nothing on it anymore it's there uh, and uh, so then the time has come for contemplation and we have done one contemplation so far which is a fine substitute for calm meditation because it also brings calm but um, one can also at, uh, if the mind is uh, as I say upset or, or very uh, um, discursive uh, use the impermanence of the breath as a meditation subject it doesn't have to be I'm now going to be calm it's a fine uh, intention but doesn't always work so one has to have different options and I have uh, suggested that many times to people in courses one has to have also a bit of an um, imagination and a bit of uh, understanding about oneself what would be the best thing to do right now because if you for instance sit down and you want to become calm and want to be concentrated and it just doesn't happen what's the result? the result is frustration or anger or um, total disappointment and in the long run then the result is uh, I can't meditate I have to do something else well what else? there is no substitute for meditation there are lots of other things one can do but nothing substitutes there's no substitute for training the mind so all these ideas come about because things don't work the way they are supposed to last year I asked Sarah my granddaughter who was four then said why she's screaming she was screaming a lot then still now she's given that up a bit and she says nothing works the way it's supposed to I said that's right that's absolutely correct but you think screaming is going to help 
so we had a long discussion about that. So frustration doesn't help, so it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. That's right. That's the first noble truth. Existence is dukkha. So, screaming doesn't help, frustration doesn't help, trying to do something else doesn't help, nothing helps. All one has to do is see whether one can approach the same thing from a different angle. And usually one can. So there's the option of doing um, contemplation, and then there's the option of using the mind as a, um, what, uh, watching the uh, breath as impermanent. And also, there is that option that when we do that, watch the breath as impermanent, that we can also see how the thoughts are impermanent. They arise and they cease. There's no way that that can be changed. They always do. Which is the reason why we write things down, because we can't. What we think one moment is gone the next. So when we see, for instance, those two things within us as impermanent, we also lose a little bit of our solidity feeling. Lose a little bit of this feeling of this compactness that there is really somebody there. Now with mindfulness, and we have by no means exhausted mindfulness yet, there is far more to it yet. With mindfulness, I have already mentioned that one should do that outside of the meditation. It's uh, very important. And the two things that mindfulness provides, mindfulness of any of the foundations provides, which is the um, being in the here and now, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you watch the body, whether you watch the mind, or whether you watch the contents, all of that, any mindfulness provides the experience of being here now, and also any mindfulness provides purification. So those two are not specific to mindfulness in the body, they are just specific to being totally observant, keen observer, really understanding. The more we're able to be calm, the easier it is to be mindful, of course. But if we don't practice mindfulness, we're not going to become calm. So it's really um, a catch-22, isn't it? It's either we've got to do it, and then it will follow. So we have two things which happen whenever we are really observing. But as far as the body is concerned, the body mindfulness, we have some extra um, results which can come. And the first one, which is a very important one, is that mind and body are two. I did mention it already, but I want to repeat it, because it's the first step in insight. Not to have that um, feeling or, or understanding that They've got to be one. They've got to be in one place, but there are two. And the mind is the one that looks after everything. It reacts to the body. That's quite true. But it's in charge. And this is something that one should never forget. Because if one doesn't forget that, one will not forget meditation. Because it's the only way we can train the mind. There's no other way. We can get knowledge, we can uh, um, learn things, 
we can try to understand difficult uh, concepts but training the mind to do what we want it to do we only learn through meditation so when we realize that our mind is in charge of our life well that might make all the difference in the world what we do with our mind so that's the first thing which happens on the inside path mind and body are two minds in charge the other thing is that through the understanding of what's happening in when we're mindful of the body we come nearer through that understanding that we are not actually something separate from the rest of the world and the element contemplation is supposed to help on that that we don't feel ourselves so separate if we don't feel ourselves so separate we also lose some of that idea that this can is only me this body it isn't only me everybody's got a body like that so we have the uh, contemplation of the elements which shows that not only other people's bodies trees and grass and earth and uh, uh, clouds and oceans and everything has the same body they all got the same elements you see the uh, water for instance also has earth element in it because if it didn't one couldn't uh, go with a boat over it or swim in it it's also got solidity in fact it's the heaviest thing there is it's not just water it's certainly a temperature so all elements and contain all elements so do we and I mean if you look at yourself or all the other people around can you see that they're almost 80% water well I can't not most with my eyes I can't but you, I'm sure you remember from school that we were taught that As a, so our optics are totally unsatisfactory they don't tell us a thing we can't look beyond the horizon and we can't look around the corner and we can't see um, what bees can see they can see ultraviolet light we can't see that I mean we've got eyes just enough to read and write and most people even need glasses for that so so there's a whole lot of, of water sitting around here interesting isn't it <laughs> but because water has the uh, function of adherence of holding things together it appears to be one solid entity now I often say and I've often thought that that if that wasn't the case if that wouldn't be the way it is then maybe all our cells would be separate and they'd all be um, walking around separately and maybe we would have an easier time of it seeing that there wasn't anybody there there just all these cells walking around but then on second thought I came to the conclusion that we would probably pick the biggest and best looking of the cells and say that's me <laughs> but if you can think for a moment that they'd all be you know sort of 
hopping around separately and actually mingling with other cells that are all over the place because they make, uh, you know, connection with others and uh, one gets an idea and this is what I said yesterday imagine what it's like not to feel this is me it's a um, such a relief you know things are just happening they're always happening everything's always happening it's got to happen because it's um, impermanent so something new has to happen yesterday's day is over with so today has to happen unless the whole universe collapses today has to happen there's always something happening because it's all impermanent something new comes about but that's all we don't have to interfere and we don't have to put ourselves into it it happens anyway so the um, uh, element um, contemplation can and should be helpful to create a bit of this unity consciousness which I have mentioned as part of the higher absorptions which we will come to later but which can be uh, also experienced through this maybe not to um, a total degree I'm sure not but certainly at least in an understanding that everybody's having these elements and all the elements out there they also have them and wherever you see somebody now for instance somebody is very unpleasant huh? happens people are unpleasant and you can feel the anger arising about this person this, what the person is doing in the person him or herself you remember that he's, he or she is made up of the four great elements and all you can do is smile so which element are you getting worried about which one are you getting angry at or preferably the water one because he or she consists of most of that huh? well who gets angry at water you know this is a um, thing that happens if one practices diligently you practice it over and over again and you can't forget anymore in our daily lives things confront us I'm confronted with just as many things as everybody else but I can't forget anymore I can't forget ever anymore that everybody has the same bits and pieces and everybody's made up of the same elements. So getting angry is actually ridiculous. What are we getting angry at? So the, um, that's why practice has to be constant over and over again and the reason it has to be over and over again and has to be constant and um, is this we are thinking in a different way right we see everybody separate and we see uh, this person is nice and this one isn't and this one is uh, likes me and this one doesn't like me and all these kind of things so what we have to do is slowly turn that kind of reaction in a, to a different direction well you don't take that kind of reaction that we've been having for the decades now and just turn it around and say well no they're all elements and that's it you can see it but you can't do it slowly little by little and you've done it long enough 
nothing to it. It's a matter of course. The same goes for, and now that's, the, that's why I'm also saying, uh, please use this um, uh, contemplation also in other times during the day and keep on using it. It doesn't have to take as long as we took uh, yesterday. You can take your own time. You can use one of the elements. You don't have to use all four. Whichever one you like, doesn't matter. You don't have to use my way of doing it. These are only suggestions. You can use your own way of doing it. Imagine yourself standing next to a tree and then do it with a tree or don't even imagine it. Go and stand next to a tree with that bit of shade there. And then see what happens when you think of it in that way. Not to think, oh, it's a nice tree or a beautiful tree and a big tree or a gum tree or nothing like that. The elements, huh? So use, a, use your own imagination and your own abilities. Everybody has a certain tendencies and abilities and we should, especially on this path, use those that are most um, uh, useful for us, most helpful. So if we have a good imagination, and I know some of you do have, use it. But use it in those directions for calm and insight. And if you have a very logical, analytical mind, okay, analyze. What's this tree made of? What am I made of? So if you're very visual, visualize. Whatever it is, whatever you can do well, and you will also find that you can do things well which you thought you couldn't do at all because you'd never tried them. I had that experience not long ago, well, it's about two years ago now. Um, I thought I couldn't draw a straight line. I had an experience when I was a little kid. In those days, our schools were a bit, well, very autocratic. And we were, so, I was, I don't know, six or seven years old, and we were supposed to draw the witch and Hensel and Gretel, which I did, just as I was supposed to, from my homework. And I got a four, which is the last but worst number you can get. And underneath it said, do it again. So I went to my mother, and I said, uh, I can't do any better than this. Can you do it for me? She said, oh, sure. So she sat down and she did it. And she got a five. <laughs> so after that, I gave up, which is all I got 65 years ago. And I never drew another line. And then I told this story to Nanabodi, whom a number of you know. And he said, ah, nonsense, everybody can draw. And he bought me a... Um, drawing pad and some watercolors and of course at first it looked awful but it's come it came to the point where I thought gee it looks great I didn't know I could draw <laughs> so what we haven't done we think we can't do but uh, and that's what it is kind of sort of imagination and ability that all of us have we need to uh, really bring it to our practice. 
if we have a mind that likes to have clarity go step by step to find out which way it really runs if we have, as I said before, a logical, analytical mind, use it some people are more inclined to feeling or use it use it, feel the tree feel the, feel the water and liquidity in you hmm? so it's um, important to keep on, to persevere now that is one thing that will help us for unity consciousness and I'm sure that the word is not difficult it means that we know that we belong in a large creation that word give you any problem the word creation it's the manifestation of everything um, I lived for 10 years in Sri Lanka I know the problems they have with words um, it's a word that they associate with Christianity the word creation but if you take one look around you just one look house, people, chairs garden, tree what is it? it's creation isn't it? the house was created by a builder and an architect people are created because they come from father and mother and the Buddha doesn't um, uses them, they're caused by caused by food so this unity feeling that we are part and parcel of everything that exists helps enormously to um, allay fears people are strangely enough fearful of other people they want to be appreciated they want to be understood they want to be loved they want to be considered uh, knowledgeable want to be considered uh, important they want uh, a support system from other people and that's uh, extremely debilitating since practically everybody is doing it wanting this support system practically nobody has any energy and time left over to give a support system so everybody is looking for it so that kind of um, stance and it's enormously widespread I would say that well, I don't know what I'm guessing but 95% of humanity suffers from this and uh, many nonsensical things are done because of that um, it gives a great feeling of um, a very constant feeling of insecurity because you're always looking for somebody to disprove that insecurity well who can disprove it I mean it's, uh, it's not possible we can only do that ourselves so one thing which helps there is that feeling of being part of everything even though we are each one of us an infinitinous in no it's words too long for me <laughs> yeah I think I use tiny <laughs> a tiny part 
of everything, very tiny, you can hardly see it. Um, we're still part of, of, of the whole thing. So there's nothing there that could possibly uh, threaten us. And uh, when we realize that, when we don't feel so threatened, we also don't have so much desire for a support system. We feel more at ease, we feel more secure, we feel more solid within us. So that, again, that um, contemplation helps us in that respect. Now the other thing that it does, and this is going for insight, and that's why not only um, the contemplation, but also the mindfulness brings insight. Um, not only those two things which I said already, purification and being in the here and now, which are not strictly um, inside steps, the inside step being mind and body being two, but the other inside step which mindfulness brings, and particularly body mindfulness, is when you use the um, elements and the parts of the body which will use who is the me is the water element me fire element me earth element me or the wind element all four together which one of those elements tells me it's me it can only be the mind telling me it's me it can't be the elements so if the elements are not saying it's me then why do I have to believe it when the mind tells me? The more we get involved with seeing ourselves as elements, the less we are involved with seeing this body as me. Now, I'm sure everybody is uh, quite willing to accept the fact that we are not really this body. But we are also concerned with the fact that we live in this body. Well, there's no doubt about it. The body carries the mind around. But I said already yesterday, and I'd like to repeat that, we all live in a house, but nobody thinks we, that they are that house. We live in it. We are, we, we are not that house. We use it. We need it. It needs to protect us from the weather and uh, it needs to shelter us. But we couldn't possibly be that such a house. I mean, nobody has that crazy idea that they're a house. Huh? But the body is a house. That's all it is. And obviously, just as we clean up the house, we clean up the body, there's no doubt about it. And just as we try to keep the house in the best condition, so we try to keep the body in the best condition. Most people eventually uh, can't do it anyway. The body has its own uh, methods and has its own uh, way of falling apart because of the element. The elements that are in the body, for instance, the fire element. A fire element is the element that uh, destroys, just like fire destroys. So, we can do the best we can with this house we live in, but we mustn't identify with it. And if you do that often enough, by becoming very much aware 
of the fact that mind and body are two and that the mind is living in the body is no doubt about that but doesn't have to say that this is me the easier it becomes to remember that in daily living now in daily living you can't say such a thing to other people obviously they'll uh, get irate about it or they'll say it's nonsense but in our confrontations with other people if we remember that it isn't this body at all that counts I mean does it really matter what sort of house you live in does it have a three bedroom house or a two bedroom house or a four bedroom house or two bathrooms or three bathrooms or uh, just one bathroom I mean it doesn't really matter does it I mean it's just a house that one has to live in so does it really matter what sort of body we live in as long as we keep it in order or as best order as we possibly can so in our daily confrontations if we do remember that then we are also not so terribly concerned with getting everything for the body that we think we should have and that's mostly comfort we want comfort for the body which doesn't mean we should want discomfort not at all what it means is that we can do we can do with whatever there is if for instance we live in a house which has only one bathroom and um, we have four people well we'll have to do with one bathroom we can't go around complaining constantly or we'll have to build a bathroom or something but it's useless to keep on complaining saying oh there's only one bathroom it's terrible I want to get in there there, there another person is in there that makes life miserable the same with the body we pay too much attention and too much identification with the body it makes life miserable because the body has constant demands it's never quite comfortable it has um, sometimes it's uh, well it's hungry and I want to eat okay so it gets some food and then it feels too full so it figures can't mind says can't meditate body's tummy is too full okay have to wait till that uh, abates again then it's thirsty then it's tart then it's too hot then it gets a knee ache and a backache and a headache and uh, it starts sniffling and coughing and, uh, I mean there's always something wrong and then we get, o- get over that you know finished with the sniffling and coughing and, and uh, the backache now oh, it stinks of something else there's no doubt about it that something else appears we have finally settled down and sat down nice and quiet and then the mind is restless and then the body becomes restless too so the uh, the body is almost a constant source of discomfort and we are almost constantly concerned with getting it comfortable and it isn't um, a useful proposition we'll never make it now not to misunderstand it's totally useless to be 
uncomfortable for meditation. We should start out our meditation being comfortable in mind and body. That's what the Buddha said. But if we ever get concentrated and even only for short periods of time, we don't notice the discomfort anymore that the body has. It's not uncommon, in fact it's very common, that somebody who has been concentrated and hasn't felt any discomfort in the body finishes with the meditation and the whole body aches. So the discomfort in the body can be overcome by constant movement. Now the word discomfort is of course dukkha. And dukkha is always overshadowed by movement, by getting away from it. And it's a it's a, um, a dead end street. We can't get away from it because it comes back, always comes back. So the uh, real thing with the body, the, the important thing, is to see that it actually generates dukkha that it is dukkha and the wish that it shouldn't be makes more dukkha and that's a very important way to look at it because the wish that the body should not make dukkha is behind everything we do when we have the slightest discomfort or have illnesses that doesn't mean we shouldn't take medicine. The Buddha said medicine is one of the four requisites. But the wish in the mind that it must, under no circumstances, make dukkha for us, this body, that we must simply find something that will get us out of that, that is um, a total identification with the body. So if we recognize the fact that the body provides dukkha, we have taken a step in insight and it is another mindfulness of the body to become aware how this body feels and then we accept this we accept the fact that the body creates dukkha not constantly but uh, always off and on and then we realize the fact that this is what bodies do and then we realize the fact that everybody has it and then we don't have that feeling of separation and we don't have that feeling of uh, look at that person, they can sit nicely, I can't envy everybody's got to come sometimes the dukkha is small sometimes it's medium sized sometimes it's large sized but it's always there the body has its own type of um, reactions if you sit long enough in one place maybe it has to be two or three hours or five hours it doesn't matter it's bound to be dukkha or maybe it has to be twenty minutes I mean who knows there's got to be dukkha it has its own reactions but when the mind understands this and accepts it it says alright well it's the first noble truth isn't it that everything is 
uh, that exists has dukkha in it, unsatisfactoriness in it. And I'm only um, adding to that dukkha by the craving of wanting to get rid of it. If I were to accept it just the way it is, it wouldn't at all bother me. And then we would see ourselves in a more realistic way. As long as we identify with the body, we see ourselves as a body. Just as, as I said, we are not a house, so obviously it's just as nonsensical as identifying with the house we live in. So having seen that and understood that, we then have this other problem that we think we own the body. And there we can use our mindfulness and our uh, keen observation, because that's the same thing, mindfulness and keen observation, to recognize the fact that if we really owned it, why doesn't it do what we want it to do? Sometimes it does, but most of the time it has its own method of doing things. It has its own nature. So what we are looking at when we are thinking of an I own this body, we are again looking at a mental formation, a mind-made thought and idea. And then we can see whether a thing which creates dukkha, why do we want to own it? I mean, isn't that pretty foolish? Why do we want to be the owner of that? I mean, anything that creates dukkha, we'd rather get rid of, wouldn't we? So why, why make such a show of owning this thing and being identified with it and uh, thinking of it in a way as uh, it's beautiful or it's ugly or it's handsome or it should be taller or shorter or fatter or thinner or whatever? Why do we think of it that way? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's silly, isn't it, to... Um, are born to own something that definitely creates dukkha, that definitely doesn't listen to whatever we want it to do, namely stay well, never get sick, don't have any backaches or knee aches, nothing, don't have anything, just be nice and quiet and uh, don't show any kind of uh, discomfort and don't bother me ever. Why does not do that sort of thing? So why own it? If we come to the conclusion that it's totally unnecessary to be the owner of this, what do we do? We take a step back from it and we have a um, more objective observation of the body. It just is. It has arisen through the craving that we want to be which is our strongest craving, the craving for existence. Baba, Tanha and Pali, we want to be. Tanha is craving and Baba is being, craving for being. That's how the body comes about. That's how we get born. Maybe if we get that clear, we also don't worry about any more 
where we were born and what parents we had and all that because um, we picked the whole thing we made it all happen parents are only the vehicles we made the whole thing happen it's uh, in some respects this is such a different way of looking at it that many people while they can intellectually um, affirm this they can't use it people are so very much ingrained with the idea that whatever is happening to them now is caused by their parents uh, inability to um, parents inability to bring them up properly or whatever or love them properly we pick the parents that we need and uh, that's what goes on then and of course the parents also need that kind of lesson so the ownership of the body comes about first of all everybody thinks that way I mean we are very much influenced by the way other people think but it also comes about because we're using it we're making use of it and we are not only making use of it but we have this um, identification problem only we identify with being a woman or a man old or young beautiful ugly uh, clever stupid whatever we have all sorts of identification problems now as long as we identify with owning this body the problem of self is massive because the body is really there to be seen and if I own that and really identify with it it's very difficult to remove myself from that um, illusion of self and that's why the body mindfulness takes pride of place in the Buddhist um, explanations over all the other foundations of mindfulness so watching the body and seeing well do I really own it now that it's for a few moments it may be providing some uh, pleasure so I'm happy to own it and then it provides some discomfort so now I'm unhappy to own it so why should I put myself into this kind of uh, uh, difficulty sometimes I'm happy to own it other times I'm unhappy to own it can't I just stand back and look at it and say well it has arisen through craving it keeps on living through food and it is a manifestation just like all manifestations in creation and consists of bits and pieces and of the four elements if you tell yourself that often enough you eventually believe it in the beginning it's just something that you may act, um, con- affirm but you don't feel it but if you do it often enough you feel it it's just the body that's all the reason that everybody thinks it's their body 
that causes all this, this feeling that also causes this fear of death huh? because it's me and it also causes this totally wrong idea um, I mentioned that the other day to somebody that one shouldn't give people painkillers because their awareness uh, disappears nonsense, their awareness is there when they're dead too it doesn't disappear at all not to have painkillers for somebody who's in pain and to die with pain is counterproductive totally counterproductive because um, it's the um, the mind goes very negative and um, goes um, into a, a state of uh, uh, unhappiness and that's no way to die so the awareness when you have um, painkillers to a great extent the change is that in the reaction people can't react the way they usually do they can't uh, talk back to you and probably can't see you but the awareness is there I mean, it's still there when you're dead so why should it be there when you've taken a painkiller um, I think maybe this kind of um, nonsensical idea is slowly diminishing and people are getting a little more aware of this sort of thing and uh, the uh, it still has to do with the uh, total identification with the body the um, and not being aware of the fact that awareness in the mind is something entirely different so it's very important to have a look at uh, is this really a me and am I really owning it so you can see that the contemplation and the mindfulness of the body are geared towards gaining insight and insight means that we have a different understanding and a different reaction to ourselves when we have learned to have a different reaction to ourselves then we know we have made use of insight I often compare insight to a, um, a phone language which we can learn but if you don't use it it goes to the back of the mind and uh, somebody comes along and speaks French and you recognize the fact that you actually do know the language but you don't understand the words they're saying or you understand every tense word they're saying and you can't really answer back because you haven't practiced it so we need to practice the language we need to practice the insight any insight that comes to us we need to use it in daily life again and again and again so that it becomes not a foreign language but our mother tongue and only then do we know it so when we have this um, any kind of insight it should not be accepted and then laid aside it needs to be part and parcel of our daily living that's very important then sometimes people have an insight during meditation and 
they come out of meditation and have forgotten it. That's not uncommon. If you can be very concentrated, it's not uncommon to forget it. If it is a really important insight that comes during meditation, open your eyes and write it down. Try not to uh, bother other people by uh, finding the right pages and uh, rustling around with the uh, paper and uh, scratching with the pen, but do it nicely and quietly. But do write it down. Or, it may not be necessary. What you can do is you can actually make that insight totally clear to yourself and stay with it during the rest of the meditation and see to investigate how that insight would change your reaction in certain given situations which you can make up at that time. And then you can't forget it when you come out of meditation, you know it. Sometimes that happens, that your insight arises and you go on with the concentrated meditation and at the end of it you know, ah, there was something that I can't remember. So uh, it was again like learning a foreign language, hearing the words, but forgetting it immediately. It can be resurrected, but painful takes time. So either one of these two. Sometimes the paper rustling and pen scratching cannot be avoided, then it's better to stay with the inside and look at imaginary situations, how they, that kind of insight would change one's own reaction. And this is actually what insight does. It changes our reaction. Changes our reactions to the point where we can rely on them. We can rely on the reaction that it's going to be equanimous, it's going to be easy, it's going to be uh, self-confident, it's going to be secure. That's all, that's really what insight does. And uh, when you have those kind of uh, inner feelings, it's much easier uh, to be loving and helpful. Uh, it makes it much, much easier. Now the unity consciousness which you get out of um, the element uh, meditative contemplation also helps to have loving kindness and compassion for others because you don't see them as others. So the unity consciousness is a very important aspect of this um, um, mindfulness of the body. The mindfulness of the body also extends to the parts of the body. And uh, we will do a contemplation on that, but I'll just mention the parts of the body first. I'm, I'm not going to give a list of them. But um, the Buddha compared this to a cart that has been, that has wheels and axle and uh, uh, floor, floorboards and sides. And as you look at them, and they're not being put together, you just see the wheels and the axle and the floorboards and the sides of the cart. But once you put these together, those bits and pieces, you call it cart. And um, the same with the human body. 
It consists of all bits and pieces. And once they're put together, we call it me. For no good reason whatsoever. Now, there are lots of bits and pieces which we have inside of us that can be taken out and we can still live. For instance, the gallbladder, which can be taken out. One can even live with one kidney. Maybe not perfectly, but one can. So let's say that we have a gallbladder taken out and it's now sitting in formaldehyde, a little glass jar, in the hospital. Is that me? Well, it certainly was when it was still in there. But when it's sitting in the glass jar, it's not called me, is it? It's just a messy piece of uh, equipment that we carry around with us. Anything like that. There are um, other bits and pieces that we can do without. So uh, when there's, for instance, our teeth, well, we get the first lot and then we get the second lot. But the third lot we have to buy. So, and in order to buy a third lot, people very often have all of them taken out. So they're all taken out and they're all at the dentist now. Well, are they called me? But when you have them, they're my teeth. They're mine. And then they're taken out and they're no longer useful. So we can uh, stop the identification. We, um, that happens when one becomes non monk and I don't uh, hit out the teeth or anything, but uh, they, cut <laughs> they cut off your hair and somebody does that for you, you know, and shave it off. And uh, as they uh, shave it, they give you a um, bunch of it to hold in your hand and uh, look at it and inquire whether that's me. Because while you were still having it, obviously it's my hair. I own it. It's mine. And now it's off. Now it's in my hand. What is it? It's just ready for the waste That's all. Like a compost heap, wherever you want to put it. It's not mine. So this is, I mean, I don't need to say by that that this particular um, ten-minute uh, contemplation is going to get uh, these um, uh, novices enlightened, but uh, you can see the uh, veracity of it. I mean, that's the way it is. Once you, while you're carrying it around, it's all mine. It belongs to me. I own it. In fact, it is me. And you cut it off, throw it away, and it's no longer anything. It's just rubbish. This is a very important uh, aspect of finding out about this uh, fallacy of me and mine of the body. And you can actually play that game by yourself. You can slip off a bit of air. I mean, everybody's got enough of that to snip off a little bit. Hold it in your hand and look at it. Mine? Why should that be mine? It's, it's just uh, it's nothing. Absolutely nothing. So when one does it oneself, one gets a better idea of it. Becoming more removed from that identification system with the body. 
obviously we have to eventually become removed from the identification system with the mind and the observer but we start with something so we start with the body and the Buddha also not only recommended that because it's uh, such a very strong identification but also because he said it's easier because we can touch the body we can see the body we can see that this hair is mine once it's cut off we can see that these teeth aren't mine once they're uh, gone whereas with the mind and the observer it's more difficult but um, we need to make a start somewhere so the important thing is with the um, with the body watching what one does with the body the mindfulness and then gaining these kinds of insights because you can't nobody is able to watch their movements all day long you can do it for some time but you can't do it all day long so then you revert to these kind of um, investigations who is telling the body to move uh, the mind telling the body to move and this body that I'm considering me has it always been me like this or does it look different now so you can have a very um, exact understanding of the fact that it's changing all the time because it doesn't look the same way it used to if you have any old photos you know it doesn't look the way it used to everybody has some old photos and uh, the mind when they look at old photos they often say oh I look much better than or gee I've grown old or that's a good photo of me I look very nice there or vice versa I look terrible and it's a total identification system with the house we live in which we call me and mine so when we do when we are mindful of the body and the mind wanders off from being mindful of the movement put it on the fact whether this is really me or whether this is really mine and use all these possibilities which are all suggestions and use them and see whether you can see the truth of it that this is a mind-made idea which has no basis in fact and this mind-made idea that we have creates all the problems that exist in the world there are no problems other in this mind made that that this is me and this is mine I like to do this um, uh, parts of the body contemplation with you quite a number of you know it already that doesn't matter we'll do it together and to get a, a, like a recapitulation of it and before we do to stand up and stretch your legs No, I'm fine. I'm fine without. 
specialist is not just been talking about not wanting comfort. <laughs> <laughs> but I am really fine with that. <laughs> on the breath for just a few moments. And now we'll imagine that we have a zipper in front of our body, which goes from top of the head all the way down as far as you want to go, particularly the trunk, all the way down the trunk of the body. And then we open up, we can open up the trunk of the body and also the head. And we start taking out all the bits and pieces that we can find inside. And as we do that, we become aware of how we feel when we touch them. And also, if we have any idea, what they look like. And we pile them up neatly in front of us. Stomach, kidneys, lungs, gallbladder, intestines, heart, ribs, eyes, teeth, anything we can think of. As we take all these bits and pieces out, we see that the skin is shrinking a bit. Take out the fat, put it front of us, and it's shrinking a bit more. blood, and if we think we have found most of the pieces that are inside of us, we then take out the bowl and we nicely immediately pile them up in front of us small ones, the medium-sized ones, and large ones. We take a good look at them, see what they look like, how they feel. 
and now the skin really collapses. Nothing to hold it up now. And now we take a good look at this pile of bones that we have in front of us and the pile of intestines liver and kidney and heart, gallbladder, blood, fat. Look at this pile, those two piles, and have a look to see where the knee is in that. Can you find me in any of these parts? Or would you rather that there wasn't a me in those parts? Because they're not especially beautiful. They're liable to destruction. to decay and to disease. Look at them again. Would it be preferable not to have a me amongst all those parts? not to be the owner but just to look at them quite objectively as a manifestation of wanting to be a manifestation of nature recognize them for what they are.
Now you might take a few pieces which you realize and know that are not essential for life and put them aside. And now you can start putting the bones back inside. Take the right bone and put it in its right place, as much as you can find the right place, and see how the skin gets and goes more. Expand it again. And now take the, all the other bits and pieces and get the feel, how they feel when you touch them, if you can. And also, if you can visualize what they might look like and try to put them in the right places as much as you know where the right places are. Having put the backbone back in, the skin is quite straight up and down again. And you find room to put all the inside pieces in. the teeth back in and the eyes and the tongue the brain the blood the fat And when you have finished putting all the pieces back in time, have a look at those that you left out because you realize you don't need them to be alive. 
ันเร่งวิสัยเ
now you see we have many possibilities of getting at the truth. We can feel ourselves the same as a cloud or a tree. It is quite pleasant. But we can also take out the liver and the gallbladder and the heart and the lungs, which is not that pleasant. But it's all one and the same. And uh, I again I would like to suggest to use these from also this from uh, contemplation because it is from an enormous um, help in realizing that there's nothing within this body that ever says me. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. All bits and pieces. And actually, in the medical profession, one should imagine that one would find a number of enlightened people because they can see these things, especially if they're uh, surgeons. You know, they take out bits and pieces and uh, there's nobody there. But that's not the case, not at all. In fact, they identify even more with the body. I had that very interesting experience that way. Well, I didn't have it, the doctor had it. Um, in one of these operations that I had, there seemed to be a, a little tumor right up here which turned out to be nothing. It wasn't anything at all. But anyway, there are two doctors. One is the surgeon and one is his assistant. And the assistant um, got very friendly with me already the first time I was there because he used to go to the same school that my granddaughter is going to in San Diego. So, and he loves that um, detective stories and I do and he speaks English better than German, and so we had a lot of common interests. So we were very friendly. And he was supposed to assist the surgeon. And apparently, I know nothing about it, I mean, I was completely out of it. Apparently, uh, an awful lot of blood came out of here because it was very near to one of the main arteries. And this assistant doctor, who's been a doctor for 30 years, mind you, got um, nauseated, got scared, and could carry on, couldn't carry on helping the surgeon. And he actually told me this, and the surgeon, of course, made fun of him, you know, that he got that way. But that was because he got to know me and saw me as this body. I was this person, and there was this blood coming out, and he was afraid that the surgeon had hit one of the main arteries, which he hadn't at all. I mean, I'm here to prove it. So, <laughs> but uh, you can see that that even when you do these things, take bits and pieces out of people, you still don't get it. If you haven't got the Buddha to tell you what it's all about. So he, that was uh, quite an interesting phenomena for me uh, to hear that as a surgeon really late because the surgeon is one step higher than he is he's the chief doctor in that section and he's the second after him quite interesting so I'd like you to, to do this now if you have questions about the whole matter or anything else for that matter this is the time to voice
Don't get impatient, we'll get to the mind. <laughs> we want to first get it quite clear that the body isn't me. Okay? And we'll get to the mind, no doubt about it. But, um, you know, step by step. And, yes, this is a useful um, way for not identifying with the body. Could you please speak some more about how we need to have a blueprint or map for our own enlightenment? Does it mean remembering the possibility of enlightenment and therefore the importance of practice? Or is it a more practical plan than this? Um, well, that's not impractical, what you're saying there, um, that one remembers the possibility of enlightenment, that's all right. But um, I meant more than that. Um, on the importance of practice, sure, that's, that's fine. But I meant more than that. I meant more li like if some disquiet comes up, some anxiety, some uh, dislike, some worry, anything like that, at that moment to rest to go inside and see, well, why, why is it coming up? It can only be coming up because I am worried. I am not quiet. I am not at ease. So if I was there, none of this would happen. Now, that's only a manner of talking to oneself. But you can at the same time try to imagine that the, this I wasn't there, and possibly dropped the worry for a moment. It's a way of imagining that one has actually let go of this delusion. Imagination of letting go of the delusion. By no means thinking, now I've imagined it, now I'm enlightened. That, that would be utter nonsense. But to imagine, I have let go of and that worry wouldn't be there. Of course, the worry comes back, because one hasn't let go yet. Then another thing one can do is, how do I let go? And that would be to try and find out what one really is stuck on, what one really wants to keep. One's own importance, one's own uh, status, one's uh, hopes for the future, one's uh, what? What do I want to keep? And to look at that and see, can I let go of it? That really would make some difference. And uh, we'll talk more about this, of course, every day.
somewhere attains enlightenment during the human life and then contracts a disease like dementia, which deteriorates the mind's capacity, do they remain an enlightened being or do they return to samsara? Um, um, no, if somebody's enlightened, they're enlightened. And that's it. Um, what, how do would you contract dementia? I mean, how would you contract it? Is that a physical matter? It's physical. Yeah. We have an uh, example of that, Ashan Shah. I mean, he wasn't having dementia. He had water on the brain and he got had an operation and it made it worse instead of better. And he was 10 years alive without being able to speak or do anything. But if he, had, if he was enlightened, which I have no knowledge whether he was or not, um, he was enlightened, that's it. You know, whether he can speak or do anything, it has nothing to do with it. Mind can have. What happens to the mind at the time of death? We will talk about this as we get to the mind. We are in the body right now. <laughs> when the Buddha became enlightened, his initial decision was not to teach. Yes, I can fully understand that, you know. <laughs> no problem with that at all. <laughs> he said teaching would be vexatious for him. The Buddha was very much against Oh, you mean profitalizing this evangelist? Yeah, profitalizing. Um, uh, teaching Buddhism is said to create good karma, but is also considered to be an obstruction to the development of serenity concentration. Uh, could you please say something about the Buddhist attitude towards teaching Buddhism? Well, uh, I don't know what the Buddhist attitude is towards uh, teaching Buddhism. I can only tell you what the Buddha's attitude is. The Buddha's attitude was this. First of all, he decided to teach. That was one thing. But the second thing is that in one of his suttas, he said that if you find an enlightened person, then take that person as your teacher. If you can't find an enlightened one, you try to find a non-returner. Can't find a non-returner, take a one-returner. Can't find a one-returner, take a three-mandra. Can't find a three-mandra, find one that knows all the suttas and can teach all the suttas. If you can't find one that knows all the suttas, then find one that knows a lot of suttas and can teach you that. And if you can't find one that knows a lot of suttas, then find one that knows one sutta and can teach you that. So that was his idea about teaching. Um, he said that teaching would be a vexation for him because his whole doctrine is so contrary to anything uh, that anybody was teaching and anybody would be living that nobody could understand it. And then he had another look um, with his clairvoyance, and saw that there were a few people with little dust in their eyes. And so out of compassion for those few people that had little dust in their inner eye, he, he started teaching. Um, certainly he's against proselytizing, and no um, missionary work. Missionary work is when you try to convince people who don't want to know anything about you. So Buddhist teachers, generally, as far as I know, only go where they're invited to go. They never go anywhere where people don't even want to know about it. So this is um, always like that. Um, 
to create them.